past tell us about the future? People tend to fall into two camps on this question. Some say that those who fail to learn from the past are condemned to repeat it, suggesting that historical choices and events provide a sure guide to present and future circumstances. Others reject that view. In this camp, we find people like Henry Ford, who declared, history is bunk. From this viewpoint, the future is utterly cut off from the past, and we are free to make the best or worst of all possible worlds. Today's Hardly Working is a conversation with two historians who beg to differ from both of these perspectives. The past is neither deterministic nor irrelevant. Rather, the tools of historical study can be brought to bear in the present for the purposes of the future. They mean that in thinking historically in a rigorous way, we might be able to map out scenarios that could help us to an optimal future. With these desired futures in mind, we can then work backward, asking what kinds of policies do we need today to guide us toward the social, political, and economic outcomes we want for ourselves and future generations. I'm joined today by Albert Zambone, an Oxford University-trained historian of colonial America and the host of the Historically Thinking podcast. Together, Albert and I are interviewing David Staley, an associate professor of history at The Ohio State University and director of Ohio State's Humanities Institute. We discuss the role of contingency in futurism, how histories of the future can help manage policy and uncertainty today, and the effect that COVID-19 may have on cities and the way we work. Well, just for listeners of Prince Podcast, I should identify myself as Al Zambone of Historically Thinking. And this is Brent Orell, and I am the host of a podcast called Hardly Working. And with us on our podcast is David Staley, a professor of history at The Ohio State University and director of the Humanities Institute. Is that not correct, David? That is correct. Thanks very much for the invitation, Al. So I'm going to take the first half of this and ask you some questions about your work on history in the future. I thought this was an interesting, be interesting to mash up Brent and myself to tackle different aspects of your thought and how it could apply to our present situation. You've written an essay, which I am terrified to see. It was back in 2002. <laughs> Seems just like yesterday. I know. <laughs> and then a book called History in the Future. So your argument is that historians should think about the future as they think about other disciplines. And I know my reaction is similar to that of other historians, that we have enough trouble thinking about the past. Why do we have to add the future to our set of problems? You're quite right. And I think it's precisely because of our concerns and issues and the way in which we problematize the past that we make particularly good futurists. So I should begin by saying, when I started college, I didn't immediately jump into history. In fact, what I wanted to do was to be a futurist. I'd spent the summer between high school and college reading the Foundation Trilogy, Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy. And at the end of the summer said, boy, this is what I want to do. I want to do psychohistory. I want to, I want to be able to think about the future. Of course, I got, I got to college and of course, there is no future studies. In fact, that's still the case at the undergraduate level today. But over the years, I've come to understand that A, there is a profession called the future or futurist or scenarist that goes by different names. There are people whose vocation is to think about the future, largely for purposes of like strategic planning or, or, or business planning or something like that. So I discovered that this profession existed. And the more I learned about it, the more I started to engage in this sort of thinking myself, the more I realized that historians are particularly good at it. And in fact, it was my training as an historian that I think 
had prepared me to become a futurist. You're quite right to point to the fact that before historians can get to that stage, we've got to first of all convince ourselves that it's okay to think about the future because this is something that historians studiously avoid. And in fact, the, you mentioned several names of the people that you call universal historians like Spengler, Toynbee, Arthur Schlesinger, in his Cycles book. These are people that we are warned not to read right. at, at some point in graduate, usually, and to avoid them at all costs. And in fact, you are somewhat critical of universal history. So how can we study the future as historians if we're not practicing this sort of universal history? Yeah, no, it's a good question, because I think this has long been the sort of argument that if history is at all valuable for helping us to think about the future, it's in its ability to reveal patterns in the past that we can then project forward. And of course, Karl Popper uh, 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 rejected that whole idea, the poverty of historicism. And in fact, in the article and in the book as well, I sort of say, yeah, that is very problematic. In fact, one of the things that we understand as historians is that events in the past were not determined, were not highly determined. And so the argument I make in the book is that we shouldn't be looking to uncovering patterns in the past. Rather, it's the methodology, it's the thought process of the historian that proves particularly effective in thinking about the future. And in fact, if there's any sort of analogy, I suppose, it's to what counterfactual historians are doing. Counterfactualist goes back to a, a moment in the past and tries to imagine what were the alternative possibilities. And in fact, that's sort of where we are today, I think, as futurists. We're sitting in a moment in time and we're trying to imagine the possibilities going forward. Imagine the possibilities, you make clear, is very different than prediction. And Correct. in fact, historical thought should armor us from the hubris of making predictions. Is that more or less capture what you're thinking? Yes, indeed. And in fact, it was a scenarist, a futurist, Peter Schwartz, that gave me the confidence, I suppose, the permission to think about the future in ways other than prediction. He wrote a book maybe 30 years ago called The Art of the Long View that described the scenario method, the scenario method for thinking about the future. And what he said is that we can't predict the future. The future is in itself unpredictable for various methodological reasons, and I suppose ontological reasons as well. What he said is that we need to think in terms of scenarios, plural, possibilities for mm. what the future might look like. And so, given the fact that thinking about the future doesn't mean making predictions, it's in that space that I said historians could be particularly effective. So, what are scenarios and how does one think about scenarios? So, a scenario is well, the, the term, I suppose, comes from the filmmaking industry. It's a description of a scene. So, a scenario is a description of a world, I suppose, is, is the best way to think of it. And the way I like to describe it is that as futurists, what we really study are systems, are complex systems. So, when someone says, I want to know the future of X, what they're really saying is, I want to know what that system is going to be what it's going to look like or how it's going to behave at some point in the future. And because we're talking about complex systems, the behavior of that system could look very different. And so the idea of a scenario is to try to describe the state of a system in various configurations. As a futurist, I tend to think in terms of three or four scenarios for any sort of problem I might be looking at. 
And again, the analogy here is with counterfactual history. What are the different possibilities that could unfold from a particular moment in time? So often on my podcast, I'm asking hopefully very direct questions about evidence and problems of evidence of, of historians. You deal with it. This seems to me, of course, one of the key problems in this, what you're advocating is the problem of evidence. You wrote a history of the future of Japan once. Mm -hmm. What evidence did you use to write about the history? So, mostly observations of what's occurring in the present, and then from those observations, drawing inferences, which is essentially what we do as historians. We take evidence and then draw inferences from that evidence. In other words, inference meaning to see more or to understand more than what is explicitly stated in that evidence. And so, I looked at what was happening or trends that were occurring in contemporary Japan. So, I would look, for instance, at the sort of cohort behaviors of young Japanese, and then try to infer from that, how would those behaviors present themselves as they grew older? So, at the time I wrote this, I was looking at sort of 20-something Japanese who were exhibiting very different sorts of behaviors than earlier generations of Japanese, and then projecting it forward. What does that mean when they're 30 and 40 years old, when they start to take leadership positions? How might they govern differently? How might they approach business differently? That's just sort of one example. But you've, you've hit upon, I think, a really important issue, I think, in thinking about the future. What, indeed, what is evidence about the future? Yes. And I want to get back to that, your conclusions about Japan. Put a pin on that for a second. But yeah, the question of evidence made me think that in a way we do this a lot anyway, especially historians of classical and medieval history. There's so many gaps in the evidentiary record for, say, classical Greece or, or even the Roman Republic, that one often has to use a piece of evidence and then project forward to what you think happened 50 years later and trying to extrapolate to the ground between two pieces of evidence that might be 75 years apart. That, in a way, is what you're discussing. Yes, precisely. And in fact, one of the arguments that I've made is that it's because we have such a dearth of evidence about the future, a very limited evidentiary base, that historians make good futurists, precisely because historians are already expert at dealing with, at reading incomplete information, incomplete data. So, back to the Japanese example, how did you do? <laughs> it's been a while since you wrote that. It has been a while, hasn't it? Yeah. Uh, probably close to 20 years. And so I was looking out at Japan to 2025. I think I wrote it around, it was around the year 2000 or 2005, something like that. And so I posed four scenarios. And one of the scenarios, which when I wrote it in 2005, probably looked very sort of outlandish. And it was a sort of a conservative retrenchment that Japan sort of goes back to sort of a conservative, almost sort of nationalistic state. In some ways, I think that's the scenario that has been borne out. And so, I suppose in that sense, I got it quote-unquote right. But in many ways, that's not always the criteria of judgment for a good scenario. Why not? Because, again, it goes back to the question of prediction. I say this before any audience I speak to, and I think any good futurist says this, that anybody that says they can predict the future is lying, lying to you or lying to themselves. When we quote unquote get it right, what that means is we've imagined a plausible scenario. 
And again, the idea is to think in terms of many scenarios, four or five scenarios, with the understanding that most of these scenarios are going to be wrong, are going to be incorrect. So as I say, I wrote four scenarios for the future of Japan. One that appears to be unfolding, although not precisely. I mean, there were, there were things in that scenario that haven't come to pass. But that also means I wrote three scenarios that were, quote unquote, incorrect or were, quote unquote, failures. It's not part of the criteria for thinking about scenarios. You uh, warned that we're not supposed to think that scenario writing consists of making simple or even elaborate analogies to past events. That's often how people think that uh, history will help us think about the future. The Black Death is like the 1918-1919 flu, which is like the 2020 pandemic. Could you explain why analogy is, in fact, sometimes really dangerous? It is dangerous if used incorrectly and used in unskilled hands. I think I use analogies rather a lot in my own foresight work. But the definition of an analogy is a similarity in the midst of apparent difference. And I think too often those that want to simplistically use analogies see only similarities rather than trying to understand differences. So, for instance, the quick analogy to COVID-19, of course, is the flu pandemic of 1918. The impulse would be to sort of say, well, we need to look at the history. You need to see and look what happened in 1918 for us to understand what's going to happen in 2020 and 2021 going forward. Misunderstanding that 2020 is not 1918, that there are possibilities that we can see in learning something about the 1918 pandemic, but we will most surely overlook what is unique to this situation. The other challenge, I think, with using analogies is identifying the wrong analogy. So after 9-11, after the 9-11 attacks, you had a number of people say, well, this is like Pearl Harbor, which I actually think was the wrong analogy. In fact, at the time I said, if you're looking for any sort of analogy, it's more like the Tet Offensive. And so that's another danger, I think, in relying on historical analogy as a way of thinking about future scenarios. You say that historians will have to think structurally and synchronically if they want to do this sort of work. Could you explain what those terms of this new art are? Yeah. So scenarios, as I say, are descriptions of systems or descriptions of scenes. And that's why I use the term synchronic, for instance, as opposed to a diachronic narrative. And that's the kind maybe that most historians are accustomed to, which is this happens on this day and then this happens and it has this sort of cause and it has this sort of effect. So in a scenario like my Japanese scenarios, I imagine one scenario where Japan becomes more culturally Western or even culturally American, let's say, in terms of attitudes toward entrepreneurialism, attitudes toward individualism, and indeed things like women's rights. And in the scenario, I posited Japan even elects a female prime minister, which is something that hasn't happened. But I don't say that they elect this person on this date, for instance. Again, it's a description of a scene, a synchronic in the way that anthropologists, for instance, talk about a synchronic narrative. You had certain hopes. <laughs> you uh, <laughs> imagined even a, a journal, which had a great title, Subjunctivity, mm. Journal of Historical Plausibility. How did your scenarios of the future of historians writing about the future, how did that work out? What's changed and what hasn't, especially in your opinions? I think probably very little has changed. 
Today, there are more historians that are interested in foresight, that are interested in, in futuring in this country, but I think I can count them on one hand. I am certain that the historical profession has not embraced the study of the future. The journal doesn't exist, although I still hold out hope that I will find the time and energy to, to do it. But you know, only just in the last uh, two weeks, I've been asked to referee or to comment on an article on the relationship between history and, and foresight, history and future. But I'll note that the article is not written by an historian. And so I don't think that the historical profession has latched on to this. What about your own opinions on history in the future? Have they developed at all? Have they changed? They've been, I think, strengthened. And in fact, I've even gone all in, even then when I wrote the book. So when I wrote the huh. book, I was really writing a theoretical treatise about what historians could be doing. I had engaged it myself in, in some but very limited sort of scenario and foresight writing myself. My Japanese article, my future uh, Japan article, was one of my first sort of forays into that. And since then, I've become more of a practitioner. So, for about eight or ten years or so, I had my own consulting practice doing foresight with companies, with organizations, I suppose, outside of an academic setting. And then about uh, five years ago, there's a, uh, a local media outlet here in Columbus called Columbus Underground, for whom I write a monthly uh, futures column called Next. I've since collected these, reorganized these, and I'm hoping to publish this collection as stories about the future, histories of the future, applied history, I think is another way of thinking of what I'm doing as an historian who is a futurist. Personally, I've gone all in on the idea of an historian writing about the future. Yeah. And, and of course, it, I decided I had to talk to you about this when I finally, the penny dropped about a year after I, I recorded a conversation with you about your last book, Alternative mm -hmm. Universities, and realized that, of course, was an entire exercise. How did I miss this? An entire exercise in this sort of uh, future history. When I got the idea for this, I realized this from something Brent and I have been talking about, uh, about the, what the, how the pandemic would change things. Having done this necessary spade work in historical thinking, I'll turn this over to Brent for the applied stuff. This is really the perfect time for me to jump in because I, as a think tanker and a public policy practitioner, your work, I think, holds some real opportunities for us in this world of attempting to advise or imagine better futures for the United States and its, and its people. And so, I mean, I have to say, as I read the article, you know, I saw a whole herd of my hobby horses galloping through the pages <laughs> um, of the article. You really do touch on some of the, the major themes that have kind of dominated my thinking over the last couple of years about the challenges of policymaking. And the first, probably the largest of those, is this issue of contingency. When we attempt to do something in life, and including politics or public policy, and we make a change to a law, we make a change to a regulation, we make some sort of other kind of programmatic initiative that we want to use to try to reshape a reality, typically a negative reality in society, and try to make it better, this issue of contingency immediately interrupts our effort to do those things. And I just wanted to ask you, you know, in terms of your work and your consulting work, 
where you encounter that contingency, how you incorporate it into sort of futurism as you advise people, not about the past, but about what's coming. So I think the first way this is done, and and I'm sort of thinking through my answer here because it can be it can be politically challenging. It's getting organizations to think differently about their future, or another way of, of saying it is to challenge or otherwise problematize the received picture of the future. A lot of the organizations, I'll say some of the organizations that I've worked with, already have sort of predetermined or preconceived ideas about what the future is going to bring for various reasons. Some of it has to do with various industries tend to be very regular and predictable and stable, at least they think of themselves like this, that are even you know, tied to the business cycle. And so they don't think in terms of deviations from that. Others, I think just because of a kind of hubris, I suppose, that they think that they know what the future is going to bring because they're going to build it. And so introducing the idea of contingency or the contingency of events is challenging for them to see until it isn't. And I'll, and I'll give examples of what I mean by that. The first, for instance, was the, the Great Recession. I clearly saw it after the Great Recession of, of 2008. A number of organizations came to me and said, we want to hire you. We want to bring you in here. We didn't see that coming. So help us think about things that, what are the other things that we're not seeing right now that could impact us? And I think it, that was a moment where organizations became aware of, of the impact of contingency. I think our current moment is the same way. I think that COVID-19 has, for many organizations, been an event that they weren't thinking about or weren't considering, even though there were, obviously, there were a lot of experts that were, that were envisioning this scenario. A lot of them were. I'll just sort of finish by saying that contingency or the, the place of contingency in trying to understand public policy, for instance, goes back to the point I was making about complex systems. That as futurists, as public policy researchers, what we study, what we're interested in are complex systems. And one of the things that we know about such systems is that big changes to those systems can be caused by small changes, small initial effects. So it's called the butterfly effect, right? That a butterfly flapping its wings in, in, in West Africa disturbs the atmosphere enough that it causes a hurricane, you know, somewhere over the Atlantic. The thing that's not always stated, though, about the butterfly effect is that that same butterfly could flap its wings and do nothing, nothing more than disturb the air around it. That's the nature of complex systems. When we talk about contingency, I think it has to be understood in that sort of context, that you don't know, you can imagine possibilities for the effect of a small-scale change. You talk about like a change in policy or a change in law or a change in some sort of regulation. Because uh, we're talking about complex systems, they could potentially have outsized effects from what they were originally designed to do. As I was reading the article, I was thinking, well, you know, public policy is really kind of futurism in real time. We see this problem. We want, we want to affect it. We do this analysis. We develop a response. But, of course, this contingency effect means that, you know, we change one thing, we change a whole bunch of things, which is something that Al's father help me understand over dinner one night. But there's also the 
sort of the knock-on effects. So we go in with our intervention, we try to change something, and we change a bunch of things, and then those changes begin to feed back into the policy. So you, you wind up in a kind of hall of mirrors where things are refracting. The policy becomes part of the environment. The policy change that you've just instituted becomes part of the environment and begins to shape and, and reshape itself. It's not just a butterfly effect that's externally focused, but one that's internally focused. I could see some of this going on recently with the COVID crisis in terms of federal legislation that was supposed to be, you know, that we passed to help businesses and workers sort of weather this initial storm. It was extraordinary to me because in the 30 years that I have been doing this work, one thing that I've noticed is how when there's something really big like this, we typically pass it and then stand back and watch, right? It's like, okay, we're just going to stand back and see how this works. We're going to try to evaluate. We're going to assess it. Maybe in five years, we'll revisit the policy. But with with the COVID relief packages, we've actually been in kind of a rapid cycle policy process where, you know, we passed the initial bill, the problems immediately emerged. And within a month, Congress passed new legislation trying to correct the problems in the initial bill and then came back again a month later to do even more corrections. This is extraordinarily unusual in a kind of gridlocked policy environment that we exist in. And I'm wondering, what, which is better? You know, like from your perspective, what would you say is better? Is it better to have, you know, sort of experiment, you know, pass the thing and then watch it and see how it develops? Or do we need this kind of rapid cycle feedback in the policy process? So, because the policy process oftentimes has to work on speed, it's sometimes just challenging, just difficult, logistically challenging to go through the exercise of trying to think through or to imagine all the effects beforehand or all the possible effects beforehand. As a scenarist, as someone who, who, who thinks in terms of different possibilities, that's an approach I always like to take is to think through not just sort of the obvious effects or the effects that you want to have happen. Oftentimes, when we make a decision or when we write write a policy brief, we think that we're solving this particular problem, we're addressing this particular issue, and we either choose or, again, just because of the, the, the nature of the policymaking process, we haven't the time to think through the, the other possibilities. It strikes me that it's a key part of any sort of foresight exercise is to think through, in particular, unintended consequences. There's a group of us that are that Ohio State right now that are going through this kind of exercise right now, especially in a public policy setting. What does it mean to identify or think through unintended consequences? How do we make the unintended visible? And it's a real challenge. It's a significant challenge, but one I think that's vitally important, and especially in a policy, in a policy setting. Brent, you also had mentioned something else that I think is, is, is sort of key to this. And to me, it is one of the biggest differences between thinking about the future or writing representations about the future versus writing representations about the past. And that is that when we write a scenario, when we make a statement about the future, we have the possibility of altering the thing that we're writing and talking about. So I'll give you an example of the sort of thing I'm talking about. 
a guy goes to his doctor and the doctor, you know, does an examination. He says, you eat too much, you smoke too much, you're overweight, you don't exercise, you're going to have a heart attack in six months. And so the guy goes back home, he changes his diet, he exercises more, comes back six months later and says, ha, you were wrong. Your prediction, your statement about the future was wrong. Well, had the doctor not said anything to him, the guy very likely would have had a heart attack. And so the idea of making the statement about the future changes the very thing that you're describing or that you're representing. That's a challenge that we face, I think, in foresight. And I think I would think in particular in a public policy research setting as well, that by making the statement, you're altering that which you are studying. And I suspect you run into that all the time. Yeah, I mean, I think it's part of the knowledge challenge is, you know, that we we look at data, we look at, you know, information, we look at studies, we draw conclusions, and then we launch policies address, you know, that are supposed to address that. But yeah, we're, we become, in a sense, we are becoming, we're taking partial ownership of the problem, and we're becoming the problem in, <laughs> in the policymaking process. So Al said to me many years ago, when I was working on Capitol Hill, and he said, oh, gosh, you know, can't believe how brave you are to do this work. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, this has nothing to do with bravery. I'm not taking any risks, you know. Well, I was partly right about that, but in large part wrong, because I'm creating risk for others, mainly by engaging in public policy work. I think that's really not something that, I've, that I had thought enough about, something I think about a lot more now. We aren't just dealing with widgets, you know, or these are things that affect people that shape and drive their behaviors. We take a certain amount of responsibility for what happens. I don't know if you had a chance to read a book by a guy by the name Michael Blasland. It's called The Hidden Half, How the World Conceals Its Secrets. But it really goes into this in some significant detail about, you know, the blindness, basically, of our public policy process when it comes to deciding what the problems are, designing the solutions, the limited ways. And this is something I really want to get your thoughts on. I mean, one of the points Blaslin makes is, you know, that we need different streams of data in order to help avoid some of the unintended consequences. You know, it's not enough to have statistical data. It doesn't even begin to be, to be enough. And that we need kind of narrative or qualitative data to help us understand the context around those statistics. Have you thought about that? Oh, yes. That's coming from my playbook now. <laughs> the idea of contextualizing yeah. and especially qualitative data. No, I'm absolutely on board with that. In one of my columns, probably in about two months' time, I'm going to write about the results of a study, a white paper that McKinsey has, has recently published on the biotech revolution, at least the future of biotech. Well, because it's McKinsey, they were looking mostly at the sort of business development implications of some of the work that's happening right now, like in CRISPR, gene editing, these sorts of things. And so, you know, it is what it is. It's aimed at a particular sort of audience. But there were a few moments in the white paper where they would make statements to the effect of, there will certainly be ethical and cultural implications, but that's beyond the scope of this study. And my reaction to that is, why? Why are those considerations beyond the scope of this particular study? 
I think especially with, with technology, especially thinking about the future of technology, it's not just McKinsey, and I don't mean to single out McKinsey because I see it, I see it rather frequently. The argument is, well, there'll be other sorts of effects that we just won't know, and that's for others to sort of wrestle with and deal with. Uh, make the argument, why is that? Why, why do we push those kinds of cultural effects downstream for others to, to deal with as opposed to right now? When the technology is being developed, why aren't these considerations being wrestled with today as part of the process? And I think that's a sort of a variation on what you've just described, Brent. One of the notes that I wrote down for myself here is that there seems to be a lack of fit between our preferred methods of inquiry and how we organize inquiry and public policy. There's hierarchy, bureaucracy, planning. And this contingent nature of reality that we've been talking about. And it leads to kind of this endless frustration for policymakers and the public. And if I read your article correctly, we could probably do better by focusing more of our analysis on kind of these big, for lack of a better word, we'll just call them primal forces that are driving the developments within a particular society or around a particular issue. A, do I have that right? And what would that look like from the standpoint of trying to reshape the policy process to get better results? So, in foresight practice, or at least among futurists, we will oftentimes talk about identifying drivers. That's different from trends. A driver is a force, let's say, a social or cultural or economic force that's driving the behavior of a particular system, let's say. So, a contemporary driver, let's say, would be income inequality. Let's just call it that. Not talking about a particular trend, not talking about a, a necessary direction it might be heading, not even a particular policy solution. But that would be one driver. Another driver might be the relationship between the United States and China. Again, without going into the specifics of what that is, that there is a relationship between the United States and China is an important driver for where events are going. So, as futurists, we tend to want to identify a number of those drivers and then to explore the way in which these drivers interact with each other. And again, it's through that interaction that we then explore what are the different sorts of possibilities that could emerge. One I'm particularly interested in right now is America's relative global position, its strength in the world, however that might be defined, and we can define it across any number of directions. But I think the COVID-19, for instance, has, has drawn attention to where America's global leadership is heading. I have one more question here, which is the role of kind of either philosophy or ideology in this matrix of factors <laughs> that shape our thinking about the future. The joke is, are we engaged in evidence-based policymaking or policy-based evidence-making? Um, <laughs> and how do we tease out sort of the influence of preference within policymaking? Elected officials are elected based on a set of beliefs and values. Jonathan Haidt, you know, elephant and writer thing here. What's really going on here? Is it our passions, the elephant, or is it our rationality that's guiding our vision or what we're trying to create in the future? So 
How do you think about that? So all futurists have bias or have a particular orientation, ideology, philosophy. I've been told by some of the groups that I work with, we like working with you because you don't have any bias. And I sort of raise my eyebrows and I say, I don't. And maybe what that means is that well, I don't, I don't hide them necessarily. I prefer to think of it as I'm more aware of my biases. And I think that's one of the things that defines a good futurist. Not that they don't have biases, that they understand and have a kind of self-awareness about this. Because it's true, ideology or a particular sort of ideological approach assumes one of my ways of defining ideology is knowing the answer before the question's been asked. And there's nothing, I suppose, intrinsically wrong with this sort of approach. But if you are looking for sort of sources of, I never saw this coming sort of behavior, I think it's oftentimes because ideology blinds us to maybe what we don't want to see or what we don't want to wrestle with, or we never even thought about considering in the first place. I've worked with clients, for instance, of, say, particular ideological or political orientation who didn't see the rise of the $15 minimum wage movement, or indeed Black Lives Matter. I sort of worked gently with them to sort of say the, maybe the reason for that is that you weren't looking for it. And therefore, it wasn't within the realm of possibility to even be looking for such, such possibilities. When I talk about like $15 minimum wage, what I said to this group is, because you're looking for the source of political change coming from Washington, or indeed from, say, state houses, where in fact, the $15 minimum wage was born in cities, Seattle and San Francisco and Los Angeles, not in Washington. And so, if your orientation, if your lens is policymaking that's occurring in Washington, or you know, what, what, what are governors doing, you could in fact be missing the source of where the important drivers are. I guess my final thought on this is if I have if I have a real ideology at the moment, it is kind of an ideology of contingency. We just can't know. You know, the knowledge problem is real. And that, it seems to me, is like leads to a bias for experimentation in policy within a federal system that sort of contains the damage when stuff goes wrong or when these contingencies and unintended consequences come roaring at us, it's not a policy. You know, you're not trapped in a, in a system in which we've imposed this idea on the entire country, and now the entire country is reeling underneath the failure of the problems that were embedded in that that we couldn't see. So for me, it's been an interesting transition to much more of a, you know, taking a much more humble approach toward the unknowns. And at least, even if you don't have good scenarios, which we often, I think most of the time, don't have, at least we have a system which can accommodate scenarios, the unexpected scenarios that, that tend to build up. I sometimes will say that being a futurist and practicing the kind of humility that you've just alluded to, being a futurist means avoiding acting with certainty, but rather thinking about what we're doing as managing uncertainty. Well, David, uh, we're going a little bit over time, but I, want, I think we'd be remiss without making you scenario-wise for, um, <laughs> for us. I know Brent's been thinking a lot on his podcast about the, what COVID will do to the future of work. 
recently talked to Clive Thompson, mm -hmm. a journalist who wrote in New York Times Magazine about what if working from home goes on forever. Mm -hmm. And they talked about the end of cubicle culture. I know you've been doing some work on that for various clients. So what are your thoughts about cubicle culture or anything else? What scenarios are you, are you writing about the next five years? So the way I've been describing, especially the world of work around COVID-19 is that work is being bifurcated and bifurcated in a way, since we were talking about historical analogies before, I think that there is an analogy that we can draw from. In times of plague and times of pandemics, the wealthy tend to leave the cities. Certainly, we saw it in the Roman Empire, right? When aristocrats would leave for their villas and get out of the crowded, uh, festering cities. And I think that something similar has happened with COVID-19, except rather than going off to our villas someplace, those of us that have the privilege of doing so have cocooned ourselves at home. I'm conducting this interview in my home office. And indeed, I've been working from home as a professor and as a columnist for about the past four months now. And yes, I agree. I think that those who are able are going to continue to work from home, even as COVID-19, even at that point that the COVID-19 pandemic dissipates. And I think that one of the things that some organizations have learned is that their employees are just as, if not more productive working from home as they are at the office and are finding that rather than paying for the real estate to have an office, we can decentralize our operations. Does this mean that all of our work and that everything is going to happen at home or at a distance? No, but I do think that more and more of at least some of our lives are going to be conducted in these distributed networks over Zoom or other sorts of forums. This trend, I think, was happening or this driver was occurring even before COVID-19. I call it the new mobility. And what I mean by that is that, especially with an Amazon delivery culture, we are bringing more and more of the world to us at home. Not just simply Amazon deliveries, that's DoorDash, food deliveries, that's Uber Eats. That's also things like bringing the gym at home. If I have a Peloton, for instance, or a mirror, I'm bringing my gym into my home. All of these trends have been sort of exacerbated because of COVID-19. Some people have had then nightmare scenarios of what happens to, say, downtown Manhattan. I don't think downtown Manhattan probably is, is still going to be a very desirable place to be. Yeah. Another yeah. <laughs> oh, but I, I'm, I'm thinking about Columbus and not just because you're there. I like Columbus. Nice place. Mm -hmm. Biggest city in Ohio. People don't realize that. It seems to me that if that scenario works out, downtown Columbus is still in good shape. I'd much rather be in downtown Columbus than in an office park in Dublin outside the uh, Columbus Ring Road. If we have to go to offices, the question is, where do we want those to be? If offices are still in our future, and I think they probably are, they themselves are going to be redesigned. We talk about the end of cube culture. I could imagine a scenario where we'll have more cubes in the same way that we're going to have like, you know, plastic shields in front of our classes when we lecture or the way we have them now at McDonald's. We could see actually a revival of cube culture. Mm -hmm. By the same token, I could see challenges for Columbus Columbus has been really pushing the idea of new urbanism, of urban densification. I could just as easily see people say, boy, you know what? Density is the last thing you want in a pandemic. 
And I think, you know what, maybe I do want that home in the suburbs because at least we're a little bit more spaced out. And there's at least some evidence that home buyers are looking more at suburbia than they are, say, in the downtown core. That's not a prophecy. That's not a prediction. But it is, I think, a plausible inference that we could see maybe a return to suburbs. If we take your methodology and we ask ourselves the question, what are the drivers in a world that is passing through a pandemic of unknown duration, once a virus, always a virus, it's always going to be with us in one form or another. We're going to get better at handling it, better at treating it. You know, it will become like the flu over time when we, you know, we have therapeutics and vaccines. When I look at this question, the the density question, I see one of the main drivers as being economic for Mm -hmm. businesses at not having to pay for as much space. They're still going to need space, but they're not likely to need as much space as they Mm -hmm. typically have. They can use their employee space in their homes rather than equipping them with an office that they use all the time. So there's a potential economic incentive here for businesses to sort of say, yeah, this is really working for us. We're getting higher productivity and we can reduce overhead. I'm just wondering, like, when we think about this, there are a host of potential drivers. How do you choose which of the drivers you want to focus on when building your scenario? What an excellent question. And I think that brings us back to the historian as futurist, because I think as historians, we ask the same sort of question. How are we going to frame this? From what perspective am I going to write about you know, medieval Europe or whatever the case might be? And I think there's a similar sort of framing that, that goes on when we're thinking about the future. I forgot who said it, Al, you might remember, but to know the history, you must know the historian first. It's the same with the future as well. Before you read any futurist statement, you have to know something about the futurist, I think, their particular, their particular orientation. It goes back to that sort of self-awareness of bias. Well, I think that's a good place for us to tie a bow on this conversation. Our guest today has been David Staley. He's author of History in the Future. We'll have a link to that on the show notes. I'm Al Zambone of Historically Thinking. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.